I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Francesca May about her fantasy novel, Wild and Wicked Things. Fran grew up in the middle of England, where she spent her childhood devouring fantasy books and brewing potions. She now lives in Derby, with her family, and works as a bookseller. In this episode, we discuss how The Great Gatsby inspired her novel, writing a slow-burn queer love story, and how her job at Waterstones informs her writing. But first, here's Francesca with an excerpt from Wild and Wicked Things. I turned, about to leave when I caught sight of a party-goer exiting the back of the house, where a porch dotted over the grass. They stepped from darkness into glittering night, just a shadow at first, which made me think of the crows that had flown overhead and the dizziness returned. I squinted, peering through the darkness, to make out the ghostly arms of the house fading off to the left and right. On the porch there was a flickering electric lamp that shed an eerie purple glow. My eyes were drawn to the light, and to the figure as they came to rest just beneath it. They were tall, lithe, with the easy movements of the rich. Despite my reservations, I couldn't help myself, creeping farther up the steps to be able to see better. They had an air of boredom, but they stared out to the ocean in a way that seemed almost hopeful, body alert, searching the black water for an answer. There was a flicker of light and smoke as a cigarette flared to life, briefly illuminating the figure's face. Narrow chin, sharp cheekbones, wicked eyes that sparkled like dark gems, lips, lips curved like a cupid's bow. The woman wore a man's white suit, crisply tailored to her slight curves. I blinked, but I couldn't erase her face from my mind. A trembling started in my chest, coming from my fluttering heart. The woman shifted, taking a long drag on her cigarette. The purple light overhead wavered and the shadows lengthened, catching in the slickness of her dark braid, making her suit stand stark against her olive skin. She was magnetic. An unravelling started inside me. No, an uncoiling. A buzz of panic whipped through my limbs. My pulse began to thunder. It was as if the longing that had pulled me here was tangible, a pin right through the centre of my heart. It was somehow both pain and pleasure. I backed away, grateful for the silent sand and hoping for the party behind me and the waves lapping on the shore to drown out the fear that rinsed through me. I wondered if the woman was my neighbour or just a guest. 
I wondered if the purple light had some sort of significance, or whether it was a trick of tired eyes. I wondered if she always wore such masculine clothes. My cheeks burned and I pressed my icy hands against them, ready to laugh, ready to forget the whole thing had ever happened. Hi Fran, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut fantasy novel, Wild and Wicked Things. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. So can you start by giving us a little brief outline of the plot of your novel? Absolutely. So I like to think of Wild and Wicked Things as what would happen if you took the starting point of The Great Gatsby and very, very loosely used it as a reimagining for a book that also deals with dark magic and witchcraft and blood bargains. So our main character, Annie, um, she goes to the mysterious Crow Island which is known for its rather lax regard for the rules of magic after the death of her estranged father. Um, and she's there to sort through his belongings. And once she is there, she meets her very enigmatic new neighbor, Emmeline, who is rumored to be a witch. And very quickly, she finds herself pulled into this world um, of dark magic where there is a magical prohibition. She's very nervous of magic, but obviously understandably very drawn to it as well. Yeah, that's a really great outline of the plot there. I'm going to admit very early on in this conversation of being a heathen and having never read The Great Gatsby. Um, I have seen the I have seen the Baz Luhrmann film, so you know I know I know roughly what you've we're got, doing the here. I've got the vibe. Got the vibe. I I understand the, the the whole kind of you know black and gold and opulence and loveliness. Um, so you've said in your acknowledgments that this is your this is the book that comes from your heart. This is your kind of like love book, I suppose. So can you explain? why this book is so important to you and where the inspiration came from. Yes, definitely. It's, you know, the thing with Wild and Wicked Things is I started to write it as a project that was solely for myself. Um, I sat down knowing I wanted to write a very loose reimagining of a classic and I really wanted to make it my own. So it became a very personal book because I knew that if I was going to do any kind of retelling or reimagining then I wanted to pick a book that meant a lot to me and Gatsby was a book that I read in school um and the first time I read it I hated it to be honest with you (laughs) (laughs) because Fitzgerald's writing is so beautiful but it is quite inaccessible in some ways and when I read it again it was like it transformed it was almost like having read it a second time I saw things that I didn't see the first time and understood things I didn't understand the first time Um, and the themes of kind of growth and coming of age um, I don't know they, they just seem very very human very relatable to me so I knew I wanted to write something similar particularly from the point of view of a character who is an outsider who is maybe a less than reliable narrator um and that is you know Annie is very naive and she approaches the world from a very naive perspective so I think in some ways it will appeal to a lot of people who are kind of going through that coming of age phase but it appealed to me particularly um as a queer woman trying to navigate the world in in a new way and as I was writing the first draft of Wild and Wicked Things um one of my colleagues passed away um unfortunately he had cancer and I found that the book became almost like a like a self-soother in some ways. It became a book that allowed me to explore my grief and the nature of mortality as well as the nature of morality. 
Um, and so it just it just grew into something that was much bigger than I anticipated it being. And I knew then that if I'd found comfort in it, maybe other people would find comfort in it or at least see themselves represented. Um, I think for me, it's very important to have that representation of like queer, coming of age, queer, found family uh, in fantasy books as well. And I just wanted more more books like that for for me you know as well as other people so yeah it just it became this big project that I just fell in love with and there are different facets of myself and all of the different characters and what I really like about it is that it's a book about messy people being unashamedly messy and being you know morally great in the truest sense of the word they are not necessarily nice people but I do think there's still some heart in most of the characters in the book <laughs> <laughs> So would you say that you are the sort of writer that lets a project go where it needs to go? So you had this, you started with this idea, maybe a kind of loose idea that you wanted to do a retelling or a kind of your own version of a classic. Did you kind of just let the words go and let the story move in its own direction? Yeah, I think so. I think I very much used Gatsby as my starting point and I used it for the character archetypes. Beyond that, it is not, a Gatsby retelling you can obviously read the book having not even glanced at Baz Luhrmann's Gatsby <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, I, think I, I, I like to think it stands by itself but I, I used that setup and thought you know what happens if I make it queer what happens if I add magic because I love witches what happens if we add dark magic and then just went from there and it very much then did become its own thing it grew I'm I'm quite an organic writer um I do I do try and do some plots ahead of time but with this one I knew I wanted it to be very language very gothic and so in a lot of ways it did just it spawned itself almost Mm. yeah I wanted to ask you about the witchcraft element because your book has this own kind of mythology and I just wondered how much of that did you have to figure out did you have to basically write yourself a handbook with all the rules about this world you <laughs> built? Yeah, so the thing about magic for me is it does have rules, but they don't always appear on paper. Um, particularly in this book, I knew two things when I set out. I wanted a really soft magic system because for me, it is an homage to 90s witchcraft, despite the fact that it's set in 1920s. It feels to me very much like the craft and practical magic and those Mm. kinds of things, Charmed, which I was obsessed with. Um, And they have rules, but they're not always necessarily the most understandable rules. um, And they're not necessarily the most um, strict, let's say. Um, And I knew I wanted this soft magic system. I also knew that from Annie's perspective, she's an outsider looking in. So actually her understanding of the rules is very woolly so while you don't necessarily see it all on paper I know what the rules are Mm. (laughs) yeah you have to you have to know them to to be able to write it clearly but obviously you don't want to be writing lists of rules in your novel you have to decide which bits are important and I guess for your reader it's only fair that there's a kind of logic to it as well yeah absolutely yeah and and what I liked about it is Annie is very overwhelmed by it all so for her it it seems like an impenetrable magic system but from Emmeline's perspective you get very terse kind of here are the rules 
here's why we don't do these things because she understands the way magic works whereas Annie doesn't so that was a lot of fun to play with the way both of them their attitudes changed I really love the shout out you gave to Practical Magic. I think that's a great comparison. And I love that film. And I've seen that film many times. Me too. <laughs> it's one of my favourites. And, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that if you're going to have dark magic, one of the things that's going to crop up probably is some kind of revenge magic or magic that is used to undo bad deeds. So mm-hmm. that's never going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm wondering then, what kind of research did you have to do to build this world of magic and to, I guess, create that mythology? What kind of research were you, I don't know, were you studying kind of like the history of witchcraft? What did you do to to research that? So, you know, it was very interesting, really, because I did a lot of research into occultism in the 1920s and Alistair Crowley and things like that. And I decided that I didn't actually want it to be historically accurate in that sense. I wanted, because I wanted it to be this merger of the things I loved, I wanted it to be 1920s, but I also wanted the magic to be a lot more in line with, say, 90s Wicca or New Mm -hmm. Age practices. Um, But I was intensely aware that I didn't want to demonize Wicca. Uh, and didn't want to demonize sort of the pagan religions so I was like how can I take the bits of pagan witchcraft and um, wicca that had been used in the 90s and were used in those kind of cult films and tv shows um, but not make it too much in line with the wiccan practice because I I just you know I I didn't want to step on any toes Mm. Um, and I have always been a bit of a practicer anyway so you know I like I like magic. I think that there is um, a lot of space in there for mindfulness and calming and things like that. So I already had a lot of the groundwork for things that I knew I wanted to look at and also the things that I knew I wanted to avoid. So it just became about kind of taking, cherry picking the best bits mm-hmm. um, that, that was suitable for a, a world in which magic is quite dark and quite vicious um, and then leaving the rest. So thinking about now your setting, it's historical and it's real world, but there's a slight kind of twist to it and it's a slight alternate history. So was that a challenge to do, to kind of balance that, the real and the, the well, I guess you, you had the fun of your infinite imagination, but how was it kind of creating <laughs> that balance? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think in some ways, again, I set out to to blend um, the 20s and the 90s almost in this this hodgepodge mix of of magic and occultism Um, and Crow Island really sprung from that so you know it is a fictional island I like the fact that um, obviously Gatsby is is set in America understandably but I wanted to bring some of that into the UK and so I had my setting be a fictional island off the coast of, of England um, and that gave me some more freedom so the prohibition that they experience is a magical prohibition not an alcohol related mm-hmm. one um, and the impact of the war is different because there's a different trajectory when magic is used um, and one of the things that Annie notes is that the other side uses magic um, which I think is is a classic example of Annie's naivety in a lot of ways because she just assumes that it's only the bad guys that, <laughs> that use the magic, you know. Um, and what you see is is a world that 
is left behind after that and you've got the ravaging impact of magic used um to destroy and so it it was a lot it was a lot of fun building it and kind Mm -hmm. of using the 1920s as a framework particularly the american 1920s with all this kind of hedonism but looking at an english impact of what that would be like with a prohibition it's a lot more Mm -hmm. reserved (laughs) tell me then about these parties that your characters throw they are very gatsby inspired so were they one of the things you knew straight away you wanted to include yes absolutely um there were certain elements of gatsby that i wanted right from the outset um the parties being being one of them there are other elements as well you know emmeline's purple light is one of them um the scene where annie um goes to Emmeline's house and Emmeline has filled the house with flowers is another one that's a a nod to a scene in Gatsby um but the parties were almost like the crux in some ways they're not necessarily as flamboyant as you might expect because you know I I think that the English are a little bit more reserved maybe Mm -hmm. particularly post-war we have a different situation in terms of the amount of um men that were lost you know to um to England um during the war and I wanted a sense of that grief and that guilt and that kind of haunting atmosphere of everywhere being kind of full of ghosts almost the world is grieving collectively uh, around Annie but they still have to let loose and they still have this this chaotic desire to experience this freedom that they're being given um so yeah the the parties were definitely vital but they're not the linchpins of the plot in a lot of ways I don't think Mm. yeah it's almost in some ways the parties are almost like a a mask to what's going on underneath when these characters what they're dealing with kind of yeah they're like a dressing I suppose yeah yeah they're well it's the glamour of them isn't it a little bit it's the, the the showing off so Talk to me a little bit then about your characters and their development, because they've all got very, particularly thinking of the um, the main characters who host all the parties. Obviously, we'll talk about Annie and maybe a little bit about B as well. But how did you go about creating their kind of backstories and all their complexities? And did you have, I, I think I know the answer to this, but did you have a favourite one to write? <laughs> You know, I, I actually have two, I actually have two favourite characters to write. Mm-hmm. No, three, three, that's that's the lie. Definitely three. Um, Emmeline is my favourite narrator to write because... That was, was going to be my uh, guess. She, she is just so... Um, oh, she's, she's so intense and so magnetic. And even in her point of view, her attitude to the world is almost like twofold. She on the one hand is very bold and very brave and very brash but on the other hand she is very sensitive and very gentle deep down and what she wants is to protect her family um Mm. the problem is that she's absolutely appalling at communicating and asking for help when she needs it so her character arc is very much about learning to take help when it's offered um and that's not to say necessarily she always she always succeeds in that because she's very bad and her siblings um Nathan and Isabel like I said before I I knew I wanted there to be an element of this queer found family and I knew that theirs would have to be a bond unfortunately forged in trauma for the kind of Mm. relationship that they have and the intense depth with which they love each other for them to put up with Emmeline's excuse my language shit 
Um, <laughs> I feel like they they just need they needed to have some some depth of connection that went beyond just friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, obviously, post war, we are faced with with the trauma of all of that. Um, another of my favorite characters to write was Scylla, though, who was the woman who adopted Emmeline and her siblings and um under the guise that she would teach them magic um and unfortunately her her mind is not as strong as it once was in terms of her usage of magic and magic has drained her um so by the time we see her she is not very stable and not the best guardian for them uh to put that lightly so she Mm. she's my second favorite and Nathan (laughs) yeah I mean Nathan Nathan has an incredibly painful backstory um, and and that we see how their histories relate to how they act, kind of as as grown adults when they're a bit younger. We we see what they've been through. Um, so how did you? They all got quite like we said. We've, they've all got quite traumatic pasts. How they did have, you delve? Yeah. How did you delve into them? Did you? Um, did they change at all, or did you have a a set idea of what they were going to be like from the start? I knew from the beginning with Nathan and Isabel, um, and actually Emmeline as well. I, I knew all three of them what I wanted their stories to be and you know I know a lot of people are going to be angry about Nathan's past and his trauma um, because it's very painful but Nathan is also the best of them and I think that there is something very important in that his experiences have not made him who he is he was always that way but unfortunately the world treads on gentle people Mm. and I think in Nathan you can see that he is the one who he he's liquid sunshine he's a cinnamon roll and unfortunately in the past because of his ability to sense other people's emotions and you know you could look at him as just a highly sensitive person just with additional magic people like Nathan get trodden on all the time so you know Emmeline is fiercely fiercely protective of him that he is his own person as well and he has his own freedom and his own interests. I want to go back and talk about Emmeline a little bit because we have to talk about the very slow burn attraction <laughs> between um, her and Annie. Obviously you've said how important the sapphic elements are to you yeah. being a queer woman yourself. So tell us about how you developed that <laughs> sexual tension. I know because I've seen you've had artwork created of your characters. I deeply, have. deeply sexy characters. So <laughs> tell us about how you translated that onto the page. Oh my goodness. I knew from the outset that I wanted to write the slowest of slow burns ever because as a young queer woman, I loved reading books that were filled with yearning. I don't know what it is about sapphic yearning. It's the pining. It's the, it's you're so- like, come on. Oh, it's just so good. There is something <laughs> so satisfying about even the smallest looks or touches. You know, I've, I've seen people talking about season two of Bridgerton and, and the people that like it really like it. You know, it's it's that yearning. It's that it's that sort of, I, just, I think it heightens every sense and every emotion. And so what I tried to do with Annie and Emmeline was give it some complexity as well, because Annie is just discovering her feelings for the first time. Emmeline is a lot more confident in in her feelings towards women, towards herself, about herself. But unfortunately, they are also tied together through magic. And 
Emmeline's feelings towards magic are a lot more complicated than her feelings towards women. And so, you know, she actually is the one who is very wary. She does not want Annie to get involved in the darkness that magic brings with it often. She doesn't want Annie to get involved with her own trauma and her background. And she definitely doesn't want Annie to get involved in whatever this thing is she's got going on with B. Because as mm. far as she's concerned, Annie is innocent and she does not want to be the one to corrupt her. Unfortunately, Annie has other ideas, <laughs> as anyone may do if they are static and they move in next door to a very attractive person. <laughs> she's she's able to control herself. So yeah, it was there was a lot of fun uh, in keeping them with that conflict, and it's a conflict that bubbles under the surface all the way through the book. In the even Annie questions, you know, is is the way I feel about Emmeline mine or is it magic? how much mm. agency do I have over my own my own feelings and that is something that ultimately follows them right the way through their journey was there ever any point where you were like I can't wait any longer I'm just gonna make them kiss or yes. you, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know I did actually take out a scene earlier on um in my very 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 first draft where they did kiss much earlier mm-hmm. and uh, there was just no magic in it for me that there has to be, you know, I, I always wanted it to culminate in um, in an only one bed scene of my own, <laughs> my own making. And so I thought, no, I'm going to stick to my guns, go with the original plan, keep drawing it out and give them that space to really learn to connect with each other first or disconnect with each other, actually, as, as the case <laughs> may be. If you can say without kind of too many spoilers, feel free to say how much or how little you want to give away but the relationship that Emmeline has with B is really interesting and it's I guess it's a story of like unrequited love or like a one-sided fixation I suppose so were you tempted to kind of play with almost a bit of a love triangle or how did you how did you kind of go about building that side of the story so B is essentially our Daisy character if we're going based off Gatsby and Daisy was always a character that fascinated me because she is so unlikable in so many senses and very very selfish and I wanted to explore that in my own book and have a character who is incredibly unlikable and incredibly selfish And yet there's something magnetic about her. There's some connection that she has to other people that makes them feel like B's affection and B's attention is the sun. You know, it is is God-given. And Annie witnesses it. Annie, growing up with B, always was second to B. She, She just follows B wherever B goes and even 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 in her journey to Crow Island unbeknownst to her she's essentially in B's footsteps the whole way. Emmeline's feelings for B are a lot more complicated because there is that kind of disconnect and that romantic attraction to B. At no point did I ever plan that B would have any feelings for Emmeline mm. um, and I you know I don't think that is a spoiler to say because B doesn't really have feelings 
for people other than herself. She is narcissistic. She's very um, manipulative, isn't she? Very, <laughs> very, manipulative. very manipulative. And there mm. are people like me out there, you know. I, I don't think um I don't think it's unfair to say that there are unfortunately people in the world like B. But I do think that B has some depth to her and there is some warmth there. And that's not to say that she doesn't love Annie and that she didn't feel very strongly for Emily in the way that Emmeline helps her. Um, but she's also not above twisting people to meet her needs. And she thinks that she, the world has done her a great disservice and that she deserves a heck of a lot more. And she's not afraid to step on people to get what she wants. Um, the problem really with B comes from that she doesn't really know what she wants. So mm. she steps on people and then regrets it. So I want to talk a little bit now about your writing process in general. And before we started recording, you told me a horrifying fact that you uh, (laughs) basically write a draft in six weeks. And I always say this because I say it's horrifying because I just don't know how people do it. But tell us, what are you like as a writer? What are your (laughs) routines? How do you work? Give us all the details. Oh, the long and short of it really is if you're my family and I'm drafting, you need to be, you need to, you need to just let me do it. You just need to, need to let me, let me process and let me uh, just live in my slovenly ways for six weeks. Because when I am drafting, my whole being becomes about the book that I'm working on. I eat, sleep, breathe the book. So I get up in the morning and whether I'm working or not um, in the bookshop, I will be working on my break. I'll be writing you know, my lunch break, I'll be writing before work, I'll be writing from the minute I get home, pretty much to the minute I go to bed. Um, It's almost like an obsessive thing where I I can't really think about anything else. And I can write slower, I have written slower. But I love the very organic exploratory process of writing a really messy first draft and just letting it go where it needs to go, um, Mm -hmm. following characters very organically. So it, it does become kind of um obsessive I think is the word and and it comes in fits and starts you know I'm not one of these people I wish I was disciplined enough to be like write a thousand words a day no matter what I can't do that I have to do it in one go and it has to almost be like when the mood takes me really or when the deadline takes me (laughs) (laughs) yeah all, all in one go all or nothing for me so are you much of a planner then I'm I'm sensing maybe not but no I'm getting better um definitely definitely getting better and I do always have an idea of where I want the emotional ending of the book to be so where I want the characters to end up emotionally I might not always know the the physical ending although you know often I do to be fair and then the middle for me is very exploratory and just following characters getting to know the characters and knowing what they would do in certain situations so I do quite a lot of um, free writing before I start drafting where I will do um, I I like to call them flashes or um, inspirations where I'm just basically choosing moments from characters lives and writing them in longhand to get in their head and understand what makes them tick Um, and so I suppose that is planning in a way but it's it's a very organic way of planning and then Mm. I've got more of a sense of the decision making that is going on in their heads as they reach certain points in the book. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of doing a bit of free writing before you start kind of properly writing the novel. I think it's a good way sometimes of tricking your brain that you're not doing anything that needs to be important or it doesn't need to, you don't need to worry too much about um, the language you use or what's happening in the plot. But sometimes it's just nice to have a go at writing a scene, isn't it? That kind of 
uh, pops into your head. So uh, I, I'm a big advocate of doing that as well. I fully, fully support that. So you're a very sensual writer and there's a very, well, there's very visual aspect to your writing, but also things like smell and taste. And I was wondering whether that is something that comes later when you're editing or are you always thinking about the, all the senses as you're writing? I I think... I like to think that I'm a very atmospheric writer. Um, what I sometimes lack in, say, plot or character um, that has to be built in in second and third drafts, I make up for in my first drafts usually in in atmosphere. Um, so for me, the senses are incredibly important. They just, I don't know, it, it, it flows very naturally for me. Um, particularly scent. Scent is, is always very important. I think it's quite important to me as a person anyway, but it always comes across in my writing, I think. Um, and yeah, it is from from day dot. So do you feel that this book had an added pressure because it was so close to your heart and so personally important to you? And it's your first foray into fantasy writing. Did it, did it have that extra pressure for that reason? You know, what's really funny is at the time, no. And there was a pressure for me in terms of I really, really, really wanted to get this book published. That was where the pressure came from and you know I, I used to message my friend at like three in the morning and be like I'm reading this book again and I love it and I just I, I can't let this go um I I didn't know how to let it go I was just like I'm obsessed and I need I need something to happen I need it to get published so that I've got a copy to put on my shelf so <laughs> at three in the morning I can just go and read it and it is a finished book um but the actual process of publishing it and editing it there was there didn't seem to be any pressure from myself at all and it's only after it's come out that I think I felt more pressure because I want so desperately for people to see in it what I have seen in it and what mm. I have loved about it for the last four years um and so I think while I was getting ready for it to come out I didn't really consider any of that I was just so unbelievably grateful that everything worked out and Orbit designed such a beautiful book and the cover was just amazing and it's exactly what I pictured in my head and so the whole process has been so glorious and then when it's come out I'm like oh no wait people are going to read it (laughs) (laughs) but we must stop at this point and congratulate you because you are Sunday Times bestseller so you you know you you can't sit there and uh, be too be too worried about how it's gone because you've done amazingly well since publication you know Orbit did such a fantastic job and I would not be here without Goldsboro or Waterstones who both did special editions with sprayed edges you know the Waterstones one had the black sprayed edges and the Goldsboro one had the gold sprayed edges and people love pretty books and I just think that that along with maybe the premise um really really ignited people and I'm, Mm. I'm incredibly grateful for it because if any book was gonna gonna hit the Sunday Times, I'm so glad it was this one. I I just love it so much. So I I just hope people like it when they read it. <laughs> <laughs> they bought it now. It's too late. Um. It's too late. <laughs> cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So tell me when it all began. Where did your love of writing start? Was it something you've always wanted to do? Have you kind of been dreaming about being an author since you were a child? How did it all begin? My whole life, my whole life. I remember, I remember age six writing a story about a dog that didn't have any spots. It was a Dalmatian that had no spots. Um, and my mum kept it taped to our cupboard. <laughs> and I remember even at like age seven being mortified. I was like, that story is awful. There's, 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 there's no trajectory. There's no atmosphere. It's rubbish. Um, I know. I mean, in all seriousness, I think I wrote my first full length novel when I was about 12. And it was just something I fell into. I started doing um, National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, in the Novembers, and very quickly I realised that when I'm writing, if I get in the zone when I'm drafting, there is nothing like it. It is it's its own kind of unique magic, really. Um, and my dad, my dad often refers to me as a river person. He's like, "You're one of these people who's always known what they've wanted to do." And for years, I kind of like ummed and ahed and was like, is it viable? You know, it's a difficult career to get into. And once you're in, it's a very difficult career to keep going with. But I have wanted to write my whole life. And I think everything I do, I see through the lens of being a writer. You know, every new experience is, oh, I could write about this. Or, oh, that'll be amazing for this character. So I think even if I wasn't writing for publication, um, I, I wouldn't be able to stop myself from writing and just I just love it so much I live and breathe it and then you know that's why I'm a bookseller as well yeah we have to we have to talk about that um because you are a bookseller you work for Woodstones and I was wondering really whether you think that makes you a better writer or does it kind of maybe give you a little chill of panic sometimes when you see all these books around you because I know sometimes when I when I go into a bookshop I'm like oh my god there are so many books in the world Yes. Yeah. As particularly, you know, when there's a big publication day, like the 5th of May or whatever it is, you know, it's one of these days where there's like mm. hundreds of new books that come out. Um, there was that amazing day last October where <laughs> there were like more books that never been published on one day ever because of COVID and all the lockdowns and stuff. Um, but now I think, I think in some ways it, it's twofold because yes, it is kind of scary sometimes But there's also then the realisation that my customers buy such a variety of books and they all want different things in a book. 
which means that there is a book out there for pretty much everybody. And we often say, you know, if you've got reluctant readers um, as kids or as adults, sometimes it's just about finding that one book that will unlock this amazing library mm, of opportunity for them. So it's reassuring. I think bookselling has made me a more commercial writer in some senses, um, because I do see on the ground what people want. Mm. But I'm also very mindful that my idea of what's commercial is very limited to say my geographical location or the people that I actually have contact with on a daily basis and that's not necessarily representative of everybody so I think it just it opens up your perspective a little bit and you you do see things a little bit more widely Um, but it is quite funny when I'll be shelving books and I'll be like this is the seventh yellow book that has come out in paperback (laughs) in the last week and a half what is going on Have you been tempted to uh, slip your book into someone's bag or, you know, <laughs> sell it at the till? Tell me, tell me what that's like. Have you had, have you sold oh. your book to any customers? Like, tell me what, I what have. that's like. I have. There was, one, there was one day the other week where it was literally the first transaction I put through the till and they just carried it to the till. And I was like, oh, hey, um, I wrote this. Do you want me to sign it? <laughs> she was like, what, really? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not joking. Do you want me to sign oh, it? Wow. <laughs> That's amazing that. and it does happen and um, we've got a little uh, a single title table of my book up on the top floor where I spent quite a lot of my time working and every time people are browsing it casually I'm like should I be shameless and just go over and be like hey I wrote that and sometimes <laughs> I do <laughs> I don't blame you that that's amazing what do your colleagues feel about it are, are they like absolutely thrilled for you they love it so much and they are all so supportive I mean like today I was at work and <laughs> literally throughout the day uh, my colleagues would be ringing me saying oh Fran we've got another person who would like their book dedicating are you free can I send them up like they are so supportive and they talk to everybody who buys my book and a bunch of people who look like they might be interested in buying my book <laughs> um, so yeah I couldn't I couldn't ask for more support to be honest oh that's amazing I'm kind of jealous I think that sounds so much fun so can you share with us your top three writing tips because I know you must have so many great bits of <laughs> advice in there somewhere my first piece of advice if you want to write as a career or even if you don't to be honest is take writing seriously and I don't mean don't have fun and don't make it a hobby but allow yourself to treat it as something that is really important to you like an element of self-care because I think hobbies particularly um, or anything creative are often the things that get stepped on and pushed aside when you've got more pressing things so allow yourself to take it seriously and give it the space that you want it to have in your life um which is the first step for me in finding the time and and the inclination to write Uh, my second one is don't forget to have fun because that's what writing is and I think particularly if we're writing for publication sometimes you can get bogged down in all of the the bits and bobs and the grammar and and the structure and actually you know, the reason we got into writing in the first place was because we liked it right like nobody mm. does this just because they think they're going to get rich <laughs> <laughs> and my third piece of advice is just to read as much as you can I'm not always the best at this but if I can read I am reading because you learn so much by reading amazing books by other people so you can just absorb it by osmosis hopefully <laughs> So we've already mentioned a couple of comparisons, but can you think of any other novels that are kind of good partners for Wild and Wicked Things? I like to think that people who liked my books will also like um, 
the Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson. Um, that is one that I always go for, and she gave me a wonderful blurb um, for Wild and Wicked Things, but it's another historical witchy book. So that's definitely on there. And she's got a new one coming out later this year, which looks amazing. And Alex E. Harrow, um, The Once and Future Witches, which is, again, another historical witchy book. Um, and this one is, is Suffragette Witches. So how, how could you not? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I was wondering if you could give us a little tease about what you're writing next. I can. So I am just about to start drafting a book that I'm very excited about. I like to think of it as having Stepford Wives vibes in that it is a creepy small town where everything is just a little bit too perfect. And our main character returns to the town, having not been there since she was a teenager uh, when she used to visit her aunt. And everything just feels slightly off kilter. And their attitude towards magic is interesting as far as she's concerned. And her aunt is not very well, which is why she's back in town. And she starts to then consider that maybe there is more behind her aunt's illness than she's been led to believe. Oh, that sounds really exciting. And I kind of love the sound of the Stepford Wives, wives vibes. Um, it's going to be very good. Fran, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. That was Francesca May talking about her debut fantasy novel, Wild and Wicked Things which is out now and available to buy. Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival, hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.